My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, bringing you another episode of Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. You'll be happy to know that I've got a lot of fresh ideas coming up in the next few months and a lot of fantastic things happening. As I mentioned in my last episode, I still have that in-person episode happening at the Community College of Denver on September 26th, 2023. So if you happen to be in the area, it'll be a free show, but donations will be accepted. Again, I can't say too much about it now, but we will be having a special celebrity guest on the panel for that episode, and the topic is going to be great. And a lot of strong opinions will be shared, no doubt. All right, so let's see. Where am I getting new downloads? Oh, how about this, Humanidites? Hello to my listeners in Armenia. Just looking up really quick, I'm pleasantly surprised to see thriving theater culture there dating back to ancient Greek times. I've also been meaning to get an episode out on shadow puppet theaters, and a branch of which is really big in that area and has been for centuries. So, Armenia, thanks for picking us up and finding a new favorite podcast. Speaking of new favorite podcasts, let's get to today's episode. I recently connected with comedian and podcast host Keb Pound, who runs what he calls the most bingeable podcast in the world, The Stupid History Minute. Literally, my listeners, every episode is a minute long, and as Keb will explain in the episode, his podcast makes fun of the type of news stories the media thinks you need to know now. In the vein of a quick weather update or a financial minute, Keb brings you the history of extremely commonplace items, information you didn't ask for, but you'll be glad to know it when the episode is over. Plus, Keb has collected a set of his episodes that will be coming out in a book that will be released on October 1st of this year. The Stupid History Book Volume 1 is now available for pre-order, and I'll include links in the show notes where you can reserve your own copy. In any case, Keb was very excited to be a guest on today's episode. Plus, I had just heard about this story, and as soon as I did, I put everything else down to research it. I had to share the story with someone. It's so rich. It's got humor. It's got social commentary. It's got some interesting legal history, and in some parts, the story gets pretty dark. It's so much story that I'm actually cutting it into two separate parts, so you'll get the second part in two weeks. But without further ado, here is part one of The Life and Death of Joe Orton. It's been 
so interesting to sit here and chat with you for just a few minutes and find out, oh, yeah, uh, I'm not the only podcaster with these problems. Uh, it's nice to know <laughs> right? <laughs> there are a lot of other people out there. But, uh, Cab, good to meet you. Good to see you. Uh, thanks you for coming well. on the show. Uh, I understand you just got done with a little bit of a tour, right? Um, kind of, um, <laughs> you know, in and out, uh, in and out of Florida here, um, hit, um, oh, okay. hit, hit Tennessee, um, and Atlanta, you know, it cool. was a, it was a cool. good time. I, yeah. I will tell you, I will tell you about Tennessee. Every time I go there, I learned things you know, <laughs> this time, this time I learned that they have street signs that we don't have in the rest of the world there. Okay. okay? Um, was driving with my son and saw the sign, no joke, says, do not enter. Your GPS is wrong. And I look at my son, I look at my son, am I seeing that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that right. Yeah. yeah he, he, he repeated it. He says, do not enter. Your GPS is wrong. So we find another way out of there. <laughs> we start to get some meat. And the guy at the place that we're eating, he was trying to make small talk. And I'm like, hey, man, have you ever seen this sign that says, do not enter? Your GPS is wrong. And he's like, yeah, we got we got them you know, everywhere where we got a lot of these back roads, you know, here to say that that's all you have here is to. <laughs> he goes, well, why are you so shocked that we have this sign? Have, don't you have it in Florida? And I said, no, we don't have it in Florida. Oh. And I said, I'll tell you why I'm shocked that you had this sign. I'm not shocked that it said, do not enter. And I'm not shocked that it said your GPS is wrong. What I'm shocked about is I didn't know you guys knew what GPS was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was your uh, your high school score, like a four point. Nobody got to a four point. Yeah, that sounds like something that you catch after you get the cold, you know, <laughs> GPS. You got your GPS. It's going to be hanging around a little while. You just take you some uh, Alka-Seltzer. Yeah. My God. That's so funny. And it was an official sign, like oh, green official. back. Official. Back. It was actually black with okay, red black. outlining. It was black. And it said, do not enter in red. <laughs> and it said, like, like colon, your GPS is wrong. Like oh. that. And I, another thing I was shocked about is they used the right your you know, because that, that's a that's a pet peeve of mine <laughs> that people can can get your your and your wrong, yet they can mm -hmm. correctly spell Justin Bieber every time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there, 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 and there, yeah, are, are all wrong. But by God, yeah. I can I can bash any name of any politician, but I can't yeah. get the spelling right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. well. Oh man, that's awesome. Okay. But um stupid history minute, you're coming up yep. on how many episodes now? 400 400 as of well, uh, August 7th. Like on on one level you go, "Good god, that's a lot." When you really break it down, that is literally only 400 minutes of material. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know it's funny is that um it used to be like like the it, this all started off as a joke but it, it it was at one time like it would be called the stupid history minute but then i'd do like two and a half minutes worth of stuff oh and then, well and then people started calling me out on it and i'm like you know what you want a minute you're getting a minute you know <laughs> and so i i did a lot of research uh because i script that thing i did a lot of research yeah. of how many words are a minute 
Oh then, yeah. You know, so that's kind of what I go on and, and like, I'll cut stuff out. And if you follow me on Twitter or on threads or on Instagram, you know, I put a daily, you know, did you know thing out mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of a similar, you know, because you have to have so many characters. Yeah. Cause it goes on Twitter first and then I convert it to everything else. But, uh, but, you know, so it didn't used to be a minute. That was kind of the joke of it. We were kind of the stupid Harry history minute because it started as, uh, your stupid history minute. If you listen to like ah, the first, okay. first couple and yep. it was, um, it, it was, I, I've always been a big, 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 big history fan. Yeah. And, um, I just, I would listen to these history podcasts and there's only so many times that you could go over the Kennedy assassination and, you know, things of that nature. And, and they would always introduce themselves, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's like, it was like, it's like, you know, welcome to the history show. I'm Walter Cronkite. You know, and there's the nice little music in the background. Yeah. And, 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 and all of a sudden I was like, they always introduce themselves. It's always just straight laced. I just wish somebody would do it like that and do it of something so stupid. People would be like, what the hell am I listening to? You know? And so I was reading the book Hamilton. I still haven't finished it because I found it incredibly boring. Like the first whole chapter is about his wife. I don't <laughs> care about his wife. You know, but so then, and that was during the pandemic. So then I tune in to Disney Plus and watch the show, right? The, yeah. And that show is written for me. It's about U.S. president or U.S. founding father history, and it's done in hip hop. That is yeah. my, I am born 1975. I, that is my <laughs> wheelhouse right there. I am and I in. love the show. And I'm like, look, they took something boring and they made it fun. And right? so I'm going to say, I'm, I say, I'm going to pull off the biggest practical joke. And I'm going to have this one minute podcast. It's going to be very <laughs> short. So there's no reason not to listen to it. And it's just going to be straight laced. It's going to be the same thing every time, just a different subject. And we're going <laughs> to do it daily. And then I'm mm-hmm. like, well, what am I going to start with? So I'm sitting ah. in my recliner in my living room and I look over on my uh, kitchen table and there is a, uh, my wife had bought a uh, ninja blender. Okay. Okay. Bam. And, the, and, and this light bulb went off. History <laughs> of stupid everyday items. And we're going to start <laughs> with the blender. That's why episode one of the podcast is blenders and chapter number one of the book is blenders. Love it. Love it. Oh, and there it is. The book. Yeah. yeah. You got the stupid history book volume one coming out in October. Is that right? Correct. October 1st. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's actually available for pre-order now. Nice. Okay. And, and listeners, the, the, those links are in the show notes, but go support Kev because I've enjoyed listening to this show. And now that I know a lot more of the history of it, it's, it's great that I feel like I'm in on the joke because you've got so many different topics that you've covered, like the origin of different flavors of ice cream. Um, the one I loved, they're beloved, by the way. Absolutely. Most of them are beloved. Most of them are beloved. (laughs) If you listen to that series, I got a guy that uh that listens to like every he'll 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 hit me on the DM, he'll be like, if you say beloved one more time, you know, and uh, it's like no, it's a status. It took pecan praline a long time, but now it is beloved. It used to just be appreciated, now it's beloved. Beloved. That's awesome. So that comes out everywhere October 1st. That's awesome. Uh go out and get a copy of it. Well, Kev, I'll tell you what, uh, I brought you here for a reason. Uh, okay. <laughs> I have, wow, this is this is quite a story here. But uh, I usually like to start these with a bit of a question. 
Okay. And the question I have for you today is okay. who is an artist that may have been a flash in the pan that you think deserves more credit? Wow. A any type of artist. Yeah, any type. Yeah, it could be it could be a visual art. It could be music. It could be dance. Any anything that you can think of. Any type of artist. I'm gonna go actor. Okay. Okay, and he's an incredible writer, but not most people don't know him as an actor. But he right. is an incredible actor. His name is B.J. Novak. B.J. Novak. Yeah, yep. and he is a, a one of the main writers on a, on a show called The Office. Oh, I've heard of that. But he was also in the show. Yeah, he was uh, Ryan, right? Yeah, and he was uh, a, a character in a movie, The Founder, with Michael Keaton. And yeah, um, he recently in 2022 had his first lead in a movie, and mm -hmm. it is it's called Vengeance. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. Oh yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. It it, it 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 is amazing. So I don't know so much flash in the pan, but definitely an underrated actor. Yeah, that should that should be uh, should be more appreciated than he actually is. Yeah, I remember that when The Office first started getting big and people were doing interviews and everything. And I think that that was a question that kept coming up was like, uh, who's the most talented on this show? And everybody hands down was like BJ, BJ Novak. Yeah. That that guy is going to explode someday and it won't be soon enough. And well, awesome. Awesome. Well, um, we're going to talk about one today that uh, got some time in the sun. Okay. And unfortunately, the time didn't last as long as it should. So, okay. are you ready? I, I as ready as I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to be. Right on. Here we go. Now, as we heard in my last episode, The Master of Rebels, censorship on the British stage has existed in one form or another for hundreds of years until 1968, when the Theaters Act was passed, effectively ending censorship of materials performed on stage. I still, like, that just blows my mind. Like, 1968. That, <laughs> that's so long. A good share of this censorship was reserved for making sure that no representation of homosexual men was seen on stage at all. And as you may recall from my last episode, a play had to pass muster from the examiner of plays under the office of Lord Chamberlain before it could be presented to the public. I got yeah. Um, number one, not a big fan of censorship. You no, know, I mean you're talking to a comic here. You know, yeah, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> number number two. If they're trying to censor homosexual things, yeah, right, um, mm -hmm. that's about as homophobic as you can get. I know, right, right. right? <laughs> so they're 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 proud of themselves. No, it doesn't make sense. So just so I'm clear, because they want to do homophobic things, that is the to protect the integrity of the theater. I guess so. Yeah. Okay, am I the only person around here that doesn't think that makes sense? You know, no. <laughs> um, that that doesn't make any sense. Okay, sorry, I, I didn't. Yeah, you're not wrong though. Like the the purpose of censorship, like you go, but why? You know, if you listen to my last episode, the Master of Rebels was partly there to prevent like inflammatory things to be said about the king or queen, or about foreign policy or you know stirring up some sort of any kind of you know they're like people want to go to the theater not to uh, strengthen agendas but to you know learn how to become better people that was kind of the intent so i mean okay. in a, to a degree i understood that but then when they start getting into and no buggery on stage 
and keep things clean and make sure no naughtiness is seen. And you're like, so that's cool. But okay, so <laughs> no, you know, buggery on stage, but yet we can depict eight dudes killing some guy in the middle of the Senate in a Shakespearean oh, yeah. play called That's Cool. At, at, yeah, that's fine. Murder, that's fine. You know, that's, you know, that's mass fine. just flat out stabbing somebody. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yep, exactly. Exactly. People, but make, we... people ask why we make fun of the British. <laughs> now, following World War II, sure. gay men saw a much higher rate of arrests and criminal charges for lewd and offensive acts. And keep in mind, at that time, not only were they being censored on stage, but being homosexual was illegal in the UK, even in private. Kept shaking his head. You, you know, uh, yeah, sorry. I know it's, it's, <laughs> that might, you know, <laughs> if this is too edgy, what I'm about to say, you can cut it out, but bring it on. Uh, but uh, that might, that could be construed as somebody up there. What year was this? Uh, this was like right after World War II. So, okay, the 50s. so, so it was Queen Elizabeth then. Yeah. Right. She was the monarch. <laughs> um, so, so, I think I see where you're going. Right. So, it might be construed that because they have such a problem with it that they might be trying to hide something themselves. Oh, and that's never been suggested before. All right. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> So, like I said, it was illegal in the UK, even in private. So, if it was even suggested that a man partook in homosexual activity, it could be investigated and lead to trial, conviction, and imprisonment. Tower of London. That's ironic as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Burden of proof, right? Innocent until proven guilty. The court believes you're gay. Uh, you're done. Okay. But... Because of this alarming rise in criminal cases against homosexual men, and because of the consistent media coverage about homosexual activity in Britain, an official committee was formed. Doesn't that sound delightfully of British? It, of course it was. <laughs> here's, here's the name of the committee. Ready? The Departmental Committee on Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution. You do that voice very well. You know, I, I wish I could do voices. You know, all I can all I can do is yeah, we never we're from Nashville, but uh, that yeah, works. You do that voice very well, <laughs> and it even makes them sound more uh, conniving. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. let's just use a word that I'm I'm uh, familiar with: stupid. Um, <laughs> than, than they already are. Well, you know, you hide that stupidity by a number of words, right? Instead of like, we're studying queers, it's the Departmental Committee on Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution. People are like, uh, okay, sounds legit. Sounds official. Yeah. So frankly, their job was to determine if homosexuality was the blight it had long thought to have been, as many noted and arrested homosexual men had been of great value to the crown, especially during World War II. I mean, did you ever see the movie The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch? I, I, I did. I did. Yeah. Yes. So you have Alan Turing, who right. decoded like this German intelligence, and it helped, you know, in huge measures. Turns out he's gay. Turns out that's obviously a big problem. But this committee starts looking at stuff like this and going, well, he was pretty helpful. I don't know that yeah, we yeah. should imprison him. <laughs> so am I the only person here that <laughs> can't decide whether the 
British, specifically the royal family, is is I can't decide if they're interesting or absurd. I'm, I'm oh, leaning towards absurd. I'd say both. I'd you know? say both. And I'd this say- is not helping their cause. No, (laughs) because in the 50s, they had a lot more say in what went on than they do now. Right. You know, I mean, now it's basically the prime minister. I know they're head of state and head of government, two different things. Yeah. You know, uh, but but back then, the prime minister used to come and ask the, the queen what's up. Yeah, right. Right. Well, check this out. This committee commissioned a report and their report called the Wolfenden Report was released in 1957. The report was the culmination of a three-year effort to deliberate over scientific evidence that homosexuality was, in fact, not an illness. And there's my dog. She's being all lovey on me right now. But That's all good. So, yeah, they had, homos- they had scientific evidence that homosexuality is not an illness, and they had to deliberate for three years on what to do with that. So after three years of deliberation, the report stated that the committee basically felt that it really shouldn't be the government's position to interfere with people's private lives and that they should just focus on protecting the public. Oh my God. What a revelation. You know, I mean that the government should, for lack of a better word, and I wish I could do the British voice piss Mm -hmm. off, you know? uh, Yeah. I mean, Oh my God, what a revelation (laughs) that is Mm -hmm. that they should leave people alone and let them do what they want to do. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing with this public statement, the Lord Chamberlain got a little more lax in its censorship of homosexual men on stage. And eventually, the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967 was passed by Parliament, decriminalizing homosexuality in men over the age of 21. And as I said before, the Theaters Act of 1968 followed right after that, abolishing censorship on the British stage. So now it's okay to be gay. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they're proud of themselves. Well, you know? and, and it, I tell you what, it wasn't just like it, it just changed overnight. You know, they didn't just pass a law and everybody's like, well, I don't hate gay people anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, um, I'll tell you as a comment, you don't want to offend anybody, but in this instance, I don't really care if I offend British people because they're <laughs> You, you know, um, I, I mean, it's stuff like this. Why that they get? I know I said this before, but they 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 ask why we make fun of. Them. It's because they, yeah. they stuff mm-hmm. like this. You know, we're over here banning alcohol in the 1930s, and they're banning uh-huh. and they're banning gay people. I mean, you can't be gay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you have these two acts in 1967 and 1968, which say it's okay to be gay. We're not going to prosecute you. And then in 1968, they're like, okay, I guess we can do whatever we want on stage. Have they not understood that it's none of their damn business? <laughs> well, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, and I do not agree with this at all, but I mean, frankly, it's the, you know, it's for the greater good, you know, uh, and you go, for who? Yeah, for it's, what? it's for the greater good, not to let people do whatever they want in their private lives. Yeah, apparently not. I mean, as long as it's not gay. I know we haven't gotten to the story yet, (laughs) but I truly felt that in order to understand the life and works of playwright Joe Orton, you needed to understand the environment in which he worked. And I'm still not done. 
But while we're here at the halfway point, I'll encourage you to contact me. You can find Euripides Humanities and Trident Theater on Instagram. You can use the contact us form at tridenttheater.com, or you can simply rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help grow the show, and I would really appreciate it. But for now, let's get back to Keb Pound and the rest of today's episode. So, you get these two acts that are passed, but before that, look, it's not really too much of a secret that we have used theater for years as something of an examination tool of the human condition. And while I'm not an outright advocate of having all audiences see all content, you know, I don't need my kids to go see Cabaret. Well, maybe that's a pretty good play. I did that episode on stage nudity. I don't need my kids to go see O Calcutta, where they're just like doing nudity on stage for nudity's sake so yeah i'm not i'm or, not up for sweeney, that. sweeney todd well, i just took my kids to sweeney todd <laughs> i mean they kill people yeah it was amazing it was amazing yeah. but appropriate or not by censoring the existence of part of the human condition just because it makes some people feel icky well that's not fully acknowledging the human condition would you agree yes yeah okay um, <laughs> it, it, yeah Continue. I, I I had to get my thoughts together here for a second before, <laughs> because normally what would happen was I would just uh, let loose on these people. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but I would speak in, in, in American English so they wouldn't understand me. <laughs> um, we put an E-R at the end of words, not an R-E. Yeah, we don't um, yeah, we don't we don't uh, spell favorite <laughs> with a U. <laughs> well. I would also say it's also foolish to assume that playwrights didn't include gay characters or themes in their works before it was rendered okay. As a matter of fact, they were all over the place, but yeah, they had to be clever. They had the example of Oscar Wilde and how he was put on trial and convicted for his inappropriate contact with men. But that was like in 1900. Listeners, if you haven't already, go back and listen to my episode 17 and 18 on the trials of Oscar Wilde to find out what happened to him. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask what happened to him. Basically, his life, health and reputation were completely ruined. He was completely destitute when he died like a year after or maybe two years after getting out of prison. It was really bad. And so you have the playwrights looking at that example. He was prosecuted with the fullest extent of the law, and they went, okay, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> right. <laughs> so as I said, playwrights still wanted to address things that had not just affected the homosexual community, but also how issues that affect that community actually affect all communities throughout the ages. And here's a nice big quote I found on this. This is great. It was simply too risky to write plays with openly gay themes. Terence Radigan, his play The Deep Blue Sea in 1952, to take one example, was conceived as a play about a doomed homosexual affair inspired by Radigan's relationship with his lover Kenneth Morgan. Knowing this would never get past the censor, Radigan eventually wrote the drama around a heterosexual relationship, something that raises questions about just how many plays started life as meditations upon gay experience, only to be altered to escape the censor's condemnation. End quote. That that's ridiculous, isn't it? You know that that right there is censorship. Yes, I mean yeah. that right there. The fact that he had to change that mm -hmm. is 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 censorship. Now I wouldn't do this, but let's just say mm -hmm. that I was uh, planning. There are certain um, places that you have to submit, like what you're going to say, 
and I sub I I submit what I'm going to say, and it's a bunch of religious humor, you know. Yeah. And I, I and I'm 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 playing, you know, the 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 theater at Notre Dame, and I got a bunch of Catholic jokes that I'm going to tell. Right. Okay. Right? Makes sense. You know? yeah. And they're like, yeah, no, switch that to Baptist jokes, you know. What? Um, Right. I mean, hypothetically speaking, you know. Right. Because, okay. Yeah. Okay. If anybody, if anybody ever told me to switch a joke that I that I that I was saying, um, I I would promptly not not do that. You know. Right. I, I, right. I, I would promptly not do that. Now, if they asked right. me not to to you know drop the f bomb or anything like that, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I get that's more of a respect thing. But they're not going to tell me what I can and can't say. You know, yeah, that's that's yeah. why I live in America and not 1950s England. <laughs> well, I brought him up on episode 20, Private Lives 1983, when Elizabeth Taylor would refer to playwright Noel Coward with she her pronouns. And it was widely known that Coward was gay, even if he publicly stated that he was not. And Coward was incredibly inventive at addressing gay themes in his plays, as were his contemporaries. Here's another big quote I found. Playwrights found ways of hinting at a character's sexuality that the Lord Chamberlain did not always recognize. <laughs> so when it went to the Lord Chamberlain for approval, we had some coding. In stage directions, playwrights drew on gay stereotypes. For example, describing a character as, quote, sensitive, quote, artistic, or, quote, flamboyant and well-dressed to tip off directors and actors that this character held homosexual desires and as a result, dramatists could get away with writing characters that appeared dandyish or foppish, and yet who, for those in the know, were readily identifiable as gay men and women. So and now we're stereotyping. Well, I, in a way, the thing that, that cracks me up about all of this is, come on, everybody knew. Yeah. Everybody knew. Like, right. I, I mean, I even in my college days, I came across people who... I don't know if they were exploring their sexuality or if they were just curious about it. But when they find out that I was studying theater, they're like, well, so you must know a lot of gay people then. I'm like, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, uh, it, it does tend to attract a larger, you know, an LGBTQI plus presence. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm like a scholar in gay studies or queer theory yeah. or anything like that. Uh, but I was being treated like somebody who had visited a Yeti or something like that. Again, none of their business. No, it's yeah, not. I mean, you know, it's yeah. not. But I mean, in order to write the plays that they wanted to write, they just had to kind of get, they just found a workaround. And right. the Lord Chamberlain was too stupid to understand it. And like, oh, this dandyish man who runs a flower shop is named One-Eyed Pete. Okay, that makes sense. He sounds like a brusque young gentleman, doesn't he? <laughs> the lord chamberlain sounds like a uh like a like a real winner a know? real smarty yeah, yeah. Uh, appointed not elected kind of like school superintendents yes there you go you know now i just said that this uh this workaround allowed characters to write people who are identified as gay men and women and it's the right. first time i mentioned women because this is so funny kev so many of the laws specifically stated the words or, you know, hinted at the words homosexual men, not homosexual right. people. Right. It was as if the idea was not even a possibility. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how how uh, against censorship I am. 
Oh yeah. Website. Yeah. I, I cannot, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right. I think somebody could, somebody should be able to say, write or publish anything they want to, as long yep. as it doesn't hurt anybody. Right. Um, right. The old adage, you can't go into a theater and yell fire, you know? Yep. I, I can't express to you how much I, 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 but what doesn't make sense is that over here you have a problem with two men and it never occurred to you that it could happen to women too. Yeah, no, 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 no. And here's the thing. We're protecting everybody against gay men. That's what we're protecting. Right. It's not even possible for two women to be in love with each other. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's kind of what the laws seem like they're indicating. Like they couldn't even see it as an option. <laughs> so in this environment where you do have like censorship, but, you know, we're talking post-World War II where people are really starting to kind of change their views on things because we have this report that says we shouldn't really worry about it. In the next 10, 15 years, we have laws saying that it's okay, it's fine. In this environment, one such playwright in the midst of all this who gained quite a bit of fame in the 1960s and seemed to be the heir apparent to Oscar Wilde in terms of wit, humor, and frankly confronting audience members with shocking material was Joe Orton. I bet you've never heard of Joe Orton, have you? I have not heard of Joe Orton. Well, we're going to be uh, discussing the story of Joe Orton today. Okay. So I had, I had to give all of that exposition about gay rights activism and, and, and law <laughs> before we get into this. Okay. So okay. John Orton was born in 1933 to a lower middle class family, and he later took the pen name Joe, but was born John. So I'm going to refer to him as John for a while, but I just okay. wanted to clarify that. He led a pretty unremarkable and uneventful life. He had issues with asthma as a child, and one particular episode of asthma unfortunately made him fail his 11-plus exam, which is a test administered in UK public schools to indicate what type of higher education they should go through or secondary education. That would be like at the end of elementary school, we take a test and it says, okay, you're going to go to a school that specializes in uh, machinery, or you're going to go to a school that specializes in philosophy or something like that, Just, just kind of trying to meet the student's aptitude before higher ed and college right right so right. i'm like that actually sounds pretty smart to me but you know yeah. what do Kinda i know? Cool. so this caused young john because he missed he missed the 11 plus exam because of an asthma attack so we failed it this caused him to be sent to clark's college to take a course in being a secretary which he did beginning at the age of 15 <laughs> So 1948, he has now learned how to be a secretary, and now he's a clerk because of an asthma attack. So now you have John. He's on his own with steady cash flow, and he started to see that life had other possibilities as well. Oh, wow, I can get out and make a living. Gee, what else can I do? This is where he began meeting with amateur theater troops, which got him the idea to apply for a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. His application was accepted, and he began his studies in 1951. He was supposed to start earlier than that, but he got sidetracked by a case of appendicitis. That'll do it. <laughs> Stupid body. Asthma attacks prevent you from doing well on your 11-plus exams, and you can't go to school because of appendicitis. Oh, man. So Back then, that was probably a big deal. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. I mean... You know, that was actually kind of fun. I have had my appendix removed. I had appendicitis. And upon getting back, I had a friend at college uh, who said, cool, now we can go to the moon. I went, what? 
He goes, yeah, they remove they remove astronauts' appendixes before they go to the moon. Oh, there's really? hey, there's a topic for a, a stupid history minute. Yeah, that that's yeah, man, you learn <laughs> something every day. Yep. Right. I mean, nowadays you can get one removed, go play around a golf. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so anyway, John is now at Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And very early on in his studies, John became acquainted with Kenneth Hallowell, another student. And in their early days, Kenneth acted as something of a tutor to young John. Kenneth was actually the one who convinced John to focus less on acting and get more into writing like Kenneth was doing. And Kenneth always had something of an appeal to John. There was just something about the older man. I mean, he's not that much older. He's like six and a half years. But there's something about the older man taking him under his wing to show him the way of the world in London that always put a twinkle in his eye. And from a very early age, both men knew they were gay. And while the world around them tried to tell them how unwelcome that was, they knew what they were, and they weren't afraid of being together. Good for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard this too. I've been meaning to do it for a long time. I've wanted to do an episode on Ian McKellen. He's my favorite actor and and his activism for the gay community and, and all that. But I mean, I started looking at that and I'm like, wow, he was actually really legit. Like just as you'd hear in any other couple, they fall in love when they're young, they meet, they move in together, they just live together. I'm like, that's really what the gay rights movement is all about. Right. <laughs> it's not about let's have an anal sex marathon because we can now. It's not. It's about they want to argue about what groceries to get and what laundry detergent to buy and what to watch on TV at night and who who, who puts what clothing in what drawer. That's what they want. Do you know do you know who Robin Williams was? Uh I've heard of him. Okay, um, Robin Williams, Mork, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's he's a household name. Oh, yeah. He once said, when somebody asked him about same-sex marriage, he said, I don't know what everybody's complaining about, because anybody that's ever been married always knows it's always the same sex. <laughs> yep, I like that. So here we go. We got we got John and we got Kenneth. And like I said, as John's youth was fairly conventional, you know, not really anything unremarkable and kind of like a, a decent home. You know, there wasn't a lot of family strife. Kenneth Hallowell's was quite a bit darker. And here's a quote. As a boy of 11, Hallowell had seen his mother choke to death after being stung by a wasp. It flew into her mouth, Keb, and stung mm. her and she died. Mm. At the age of 23, he had found his father dead with his head in a gas oven, but he had stepped over the body, put the kettle on, made a cup of tea, and had a shave before he reported the death. End quote. Wow. So, <laughs> little, uh, little different view on the old uh, life-death thing there. Sure. <laughs> sure. So. The two graduated in 1953, and while they both had some initial work behind the scenes with the repertory theater, they both soon realized that they felt more passionate about writing. For years, they worked odd jobs while attempting to have scripts and novels published, getting rejected time after time. And eventually, the two moved to the London borough of Islington. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. But Islington in 1959, where they shared a flat and also their first bit of notoriety. Oh, boy. This is fantastic. <laughs> to pep up the rather dreary exterior of their apartment, Kenneth and John would cut out pictures from magazines and turn pretty much 
all of the wall space in the entire apartment into one big collage of sorts. So it's just wallpapered with, you know, celebrities or, you know, uh, pictures of animals and, you know, just big words. And I mean, that's that was their apartment. And then I think there was something I read. I don't know why journalists do this sometimes, but they they're like, here's a detail you never needed to know. And it has no impact on the story. But the you know, they talk about the apartment and then there was a yellow and black checkered ceiling. And I'm like. Okay, okay. Well, that that's fantastic. Um, did it have anything to do with what happened? No, no. They had a yellow and black checkered ceiling. Okay, cool. We didn't need that. We, I'm just, you know, just gonna say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So yeah, all of this uh, collaging and decoupaging of their walls didn't just stop there. To cure their boredom and the pain of a long line of rejection notices from publishers, Kenneth and John created quite an operation of covertly plucking books from the shelves of the Islington Public Library, take them home, and defacing them with some of the 1,500 or so pictures they'd cut out. They just had a file or a box full of them. They'd also paste new material on the dust jackets of the books, typewritten on their Adler Tippa typewriter. Bring that up because it's going to come back in later. Okay. Then they'd return the books and often wait to see them reshelved and watch it with contained glee as readers would check them out and be shocked by the content they saw. I love these guys. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that is yeah. like one of the best practical jokes I've ever heard. Oh, this is so funny. This is so funny. Uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and I mean, it was a rather clever prank and something of good statement on the perceived need to censor materials. Right. And a challenge to the societal norm that only censored materials could be popular. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a great, such a great statement. It's so, frankly, it's Banksy, isn't it? Sure. Like, I love that. Good, yeah. good word. Okay, here we go. So what did they put on the books that could be considered so scandalous? Uh Well, here we go. This is a huge quote that I found, but and it's going to come in parts. So I'm going to just give it to you part of the time. Okay. Sometimes these alterations were obscene. A reader scanning a relatively tame Dorothy Sayers whodunit would find themselves confronted with the mystery even before they opened the book. The blurb, you know, the section on the back sure. when you turn it over and it tells you what the book's about. Right. The blurb now describes some missing knickers and a seven inch phallus and concluded <laughs> and concluded all in caps here. Read this behind closed doors and have a good shit while you are reading. That's funny. Uh, let's see. Meanwhile, the collected plays of Emlyn Williams, also, you know, fairly tame and censored material. Sure. Suddenly included titles such as Knickers Must Fall, Olivia Prude, Up the Front, and Up the Back. And I think there was even one. God, if I can find it, it was something like um, Who Fucked Daisy or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Who Fucked Penny. That was it. Oh, these look lovely. I'll, I'll enjoy who fuck Penny. Can you, can you just imagine like <laughs> this lady and she's getting, you know, she just went to church at the, yeah. the Church of England, you know, and they <laughs> went through mass. She did communion and all this good stuff. And she's mm-hmm. like, 
Yo, hey, honey. On the way home, can you stop by the library real quick? And uh, and I want I want to pick up a book. And she picks up a book, turns it over, and she reads, "Who fucked Daisy?" You know, that's fucking hilarious. So it wasn't just writing. Here's here's continuing this quote. The collages on the covers were no less subdued and often overtly queer. On the book of a cover of John Betjeman Poetry, a middle-aged man glowers in scanty black briefs. His body is covered entirely in tattoos. <laughs> so it's just this, like, older man just right. frowning at you in his in his jockeys, and he's got all these tattoos, like, from his neck to his toes. That, that that's cool man yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, and on a book of really tame you know kind yeah, of conservative type uh yeah uh let's see uh and a now mostly forgotten romance novel queen's favorite was redone with two men wrestling naked to their navels that might be the queen's favorite i mean you, uh-huh. don't know how she you might, never you know. know that's she right might been, mm-hmm. she might have been you know a little uh a little different than her her purse and hat wearing, right. you know, and all that good stuff. Maybe she did enjoy watching gay men wrestle. She she, I bet you she did. You know yeah. what? Whatever floats your boat, man. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. do you. Uh, and here's the end of the quote: Some celebrated same sex desire in subtle ways. On the cover of Othello, Othello looks past the naked and zoftig Desdemona, whose hand hovers suggestively above her crotch. Behind Othello, a man points an arrow at his backside. What, whatever do you mean? Well, I, what, what, I what, are they, what are they trying to say? Uh, do not use your GPS here. That's what I think. Right. Yeah. Don't enter. I don't know about you, but I love practical jokes, and to have it make such a statement is pretty impressive. However, in our next episode, things take a strange turn because of this prank, and a new voice on the British stage emerges. Plus, this tale has a truly weird ending, so you want to make sure you're back here in two weeks for the amazing conclusion of the life and death of Joe Orton. And while you'll hear from him again on the next episode, I'd like to thank Keb Pound for his contribution to these episodes, and I'd like you to all go check out the Stupid History Minute and pre-order your copy of the Stupid History Book Volume 1. Links are in the show notes. But that's all for this episode. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater signing off. Another episode will be in your ears in two weeks, and I'll see you at intermission. Mm-hmm.